getting into the specifics of a situation and what happened and how it happened and the detail of it rather than the broader, wider meaning of that event or possible consequences of that event. Um, because just thinking about meanings and consequences don't really help you to, to process the event or come up with solutions. They just make it a bigger problem. Okay, life can be crazy. You're feeling like you're sinking. Just trying to find a meaning. It's time for better thinking. Yeah, better thinking. Time to tune in. Let's go. Welcome to this episode of Better Thinking. Today's guest is Professor Edward Watkins, and we discuss ruminations and mood disorders and how those two things connect. Not only is Professor Watkins a researcher, but he's also a clinical psychologist. You're gonna absolutely love this episode. Just a quick note, there is some crackling in the mic. There was some sort of technical difficulties. Not sure why, but uh, you know, bear, bear through it. It's a great episode, lots of great information. Professor Watkins, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you here to talk about mood disorders and you know, your, your, your great experience in not only you know, practicing and, and treating mood disorders and depression, but also in your research as well. So thank you for uh, taking the time. Look forward to picking your brain. That's great. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Tell me a little bit about, uh, about, about your work, how you got into it. I know that many of my colleagues and likewise my, my, myself have this great interest in, in anxiety. You know, it seems to be this space that uh, a lot of us are drawn as psychologists to treating, psychology, uh, to treating anxiety. Not sure whether that is, is, is a function of uh, maybe the rate of change or uh, maybe some, something else, but uh, I'm interested to find out about how you got into not only psychology, but also working in mood disorders and, and then researching it. Yeah, I mean, I got, in, I got into psychology just because I picked up books about it when I was a teenager, thought it was interesting, and then decided that would be a good to, degree to do. And whilst that was a more unusual choice when I did it, I mean, it was a good choice for me because I, I, I got to university and I really enjoyed what I was doing, which wasn't true of everybody. Um, and then I thought, well, I want to do something applied with this. So I moved towards doing clinical psychology. And I was doing my training at the Institute of Psychiatry, the Maudsley Hospital in London. And um, so I was very much being trained in a sort of more cognitive behavioral model. Uh, but during that, I, I had placements um, that were in working on the, the depression unit there, basically, which was a specialist unit for the, for the UK, um, for people who are hard to treat. And I just found it really fascinating and that I got a sense I had some aptitude for working um, with people who are suffering from depression. I mean, it's been my experience and maybe you had the same experience. When I talk to clinicians, often they'll say, well, how can you work with people who have that particular difficulty? And you might say, yeah, but that's I, I'm comfortable with that, but I'm less comfortable with this other difficulty. Uh, so I think there's something about uh, you know our personal characters and what we're used to and how we empathise with different situations that that can help. So I, I'm quite comfortable with people who are quite low and quite upset, and I'm but then trying to move them past that point. What is it about that uh, that, that that draws you to that? Any any sort of um, you know reflections that you can call on? I don't know what if there's anything that particularly draws to me. I mean, it was it was just a fortuitous accident that I found myself working with patients with depression and, and actually finding it really 
fascinating to try and understand what was happening, but also reward, so rewarding when you see that someone's actually coming through the depression and starting to get better. And, um, and I guess if you have some success there early on, then you think, oh, there's something that's done with it. And then you start to realize what a common problem it is and what a debilitating condition it can be. So it's like, well, we, we ought to be taking this seriously. You ought to be doing something about it. Um, and then, you, you know, so you just follow up on that, I think. Um, so it was never, I didn't have a kind of conscious thought, oh, I'm going to go and work in depression. It just kind of happened by steps. Obviously, we all uh, in, in, in many senses work as scientists, practitioners all, all, all the time. How did you move across from you know, working as a treating clinical psychologist across to the research side? Yeah, I mean, I was always interested in doing research uh, and it was just more a question of the timing of when I, I followed up on that. So I know people who went on to do a, a research PhD straight after they'd done their undergraduate degree and I went on to do my clinical training and then I thought actually I'd much rather do a um, research that was clinically applied once I understood the, 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 what the clinical situation was and had some skills there so that was a deliberate decision for me so by the time I was working regularly with people with depression the obvious thing was to start doing some research that was related to depression uh, and treatment of depression so all my research has really been about understanding the, the psychological processes that might be contributing to depression and then seeing if we can translate that into improved intervention. So that's really what we started doing. And, and so I was lucky enough to get a, a PhD that was split between London and, and the Medical Research Council um, wanted brain sciences unit in Cambridge. Um, so I was working with you know people who had really led the field in um, psychological inter interventions and research into in depression in the UK. So I had John Teasdale as my PhD supervisor. Um, so that really gave me a great foundation to, to start thinking about how to, to think about investigating depression. And again, there was, we were lucky because we started looking at one thing as is often the case. So we were interested in looking at, um, aspects of how people can step back from their upsetting moments and upsetting feelings. So we're trying to look at this concept of um, decentering, which is in cognitive therapy, what the idea that you can see a thought as a thought rather than a fact. So we were trying to see if we could come up with experiments to look at that. And in the course of that, we started looking at how we might induce different moods in the lab. Um, and we started using some materials that were designed to make people ruminate in the lab. And then we started getting effects from that that we weren't expecting. So the, whole, the, the PhD then started moving off into understanding the, the consequences of rumination uh, and, and on, on memory and, and so on. So again, fortuitous finding and then following that, that up, which gave me probably another five years of, of research. I know that in the uh, acceptance and commitment therapy world, that's sort of, I think you called it decentering. Um, Act calls it you know, diffusion, being able to kind of, you know, see the thought rather than see from the thought. Uh, yeah. and, and obviously yeah. that, that process of, of observing and um, yeah, doing that non-judgmentally. You know, yeah, no, 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 I mean, and it's a really interesting process. And, 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 and I mean, that's part of what I wrote my thesis on, um, original PhD thesis. So, so I, I have chapters about CBT and ACT and mindfulness because all of those approaches yeah. try and do that. But we hadn't really looked at it 
and sort try to understand it in the lab. Uh, you know, so we were looking to see whether we could generate experimental materials that might help people dissenter, but also see what impact they might have on various cognitive processes. Um, and that was kind of interesting, but it, 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 it hits a wall after a while. So, but then the rumination stuff really picked up. So, yeah, which yeah. is kind of the reverse. How do people get stuck in stuff? Mm-hmm. Can you tell me a little bit about what you what you did in terms of in the lab to try and create those conditions? So we, we basically had a number of studies where we would get people in and we'd try and get them to be upset about something. So we'd do kind of traditional mood induction studies where you might get people to listen to um, sad music, slow music, think about an upsetting memory. And then we would look to see how quickly they recovered from that. And one of our conditions, we gave people scrambled sentences that they had to unscramble. And some of those scrambled sentences created what we would consider kind of uh, decentering or diffusion type statements like um, this won't last very long or in 10 years time, this won't seem important. Or you know, So to get people to get perspective on the experience and the thought and others would just neutral statements and then to see whether they had a differential effect. And we did see they had a differential effect on um, how quickly people's moods changed in the lab. So we got some evidence that you could give kind of questions to, to see how they help people shift out of a, a mood state. And is, is there sort of application um, from, from, from that or obviously some, some more research to be done? Well, I mean, I think what we were, it was more the other way around for that research. And then, and then the more that it was that we were doing in the lab in a more controlled way, some of the things that people try and do in therapy. So particularly when you're doing Socratic dialogue in, in cognitive behavior therapy. So helping people to see that when something bad has happened, you can put it into perspective or see it over a different, different angle. Um, and showing that doing that could have an effect um, in a more controlled way. I guess what we could have done, which is a route we didn't end up following, is, is start to play around with or do different types of ways of getting people to try and put things in perspective, have different effects. So is it is it putting it in perspective by time or by context or, or um, in other ways likely to have an effect? Um, what was interesting is we got these effects of of using rumination as an induction and then starting to see, oh, it looks like rumination is affecting things like memory and reasoning. Maybe maybe we should look at that a bit more and see if we can understand that further. The rumination side is an extremely fascinating space for, for me because, you know, I, I don't think that, you know, a day goes by where at least half of my, you know, clients that are coming in uh, are not ruminating about something you know and, and it tends to be the same themes it might not be the exact same uh, um, uh, event but it's certainly the same theme uh, and you know whether it be the I'm not good enough type of you know core belief type spaces or it might be you know I'm being watched I'm being observed I'm being judged um, you know which is kind of like a almost like an offset of I'm not good enough or I'm going to be rejected uh, but uh can you talk about a little bit about the the rumination sort of studies uh, or what, what what you've kind of looked at um, and where you yeah. might, might yeah. be seeing that some of the you know research is pointing into what we can I mean, do about I that? What we, yeah, I mean, the rumination work has kind of moved through some phases. So 
our, our first rumination studies were really about what are the effects of ruminating. And this really followed on from the seminal work that Susan Nolan-Hexima was doing, who was the person that really put depressive rumination on, on the map because she did these great experimental studies. She came up with the, the paradigms where you would ask people to ruminate and you'd get them to repetitively think about how they were feeling and what their feelings might mean versus distract themselves. Um, so we did those paradigms and we found that they were affecting memory and they were making people more likely to recall over general memories from their past you know memories that were summaries of what had happened but didn't get into the contextual details of specific incidents which is a a well-known phenomenon in depression so it's kind of interesting that it looked like rumination might be one of the driving mechanisms of that phenomenon but having started with that we then got more interested in well what is it that might be driving the rumination or getting people stuck in the rumination um, and that started to work in parallel between what we were doing in the lab and what we've been doing in the clinical settings. Because like, like you've just said, when I started working with people with lots of chronic and severe depression, if you start talking to them and you ask them about do thoughts go round and round and do they get stuck on themes, nearly to a single person, they will all say that they do. And they will also probably say they've been doing it for as long as they can remember. They find it really hard to control. And what's interesting is a lot of them will say no one's really talked to them about it before in therapy and they're not sure what they, how to get past it. So we, it became really obvious that we should try and target that and find ways of working with it. And then the other thing that, that really drove a lot of that research was the sort of observation and, and also the understanding from sort of wider psychology in terms of cognitive and social psychology that we all ruminate to some degree. I mean, it's not like rumination is a weird thing that only people with anxiety and depression do. Every human being at some point dwells on what could go wrong or what has gone wrong or things that didn't go like they wanted to or upsets or losses or disappointments. So that's a normal part of being human. But then for some people, they seem to get more stuck in it. It becomes more intense or more problematic. So we've got really interested in the question of not so much that rumination is a is is uh, you know a, a sign of weakness or illness or but okay we all do it but why is it that some people it seems to be much less they get stuck in unhelpful rumination and and then if you look at the literature you know you could say that there's quite a lot of processes that involve repetitively turning something over in your mind that could be helpful. So sometimes you're solving a problem when you think something over and over again. Sometimes you're habituating to something. Sometimes you're, you're processing an upsetting event and coming to terms with it. I mean, and, and the classic example of that would be grief and bereavement. So if someone's had a, a loved one close to them recently pass away, it would be very strange for them not to think about that person and not to feel upset and repetitively think about that person. But that seems to be part of the process of, healing also there are we get stuck in that and that feeds into things like complicated grief so we were really interested in that question what makes it that thinking about an upsetting or difficult event either helpful or unhelpful so we did a whole that's really been a lot of the studies that we were doing um so and that's a really interesting distinction between the helpful and unhelpful because when it's helpful, we would often go out and say, wow, that person's so passionate about 
X. You know, they've got a real interest or a hobby, you know, and, and we, we, in some sense, even admire that passion. You know, even if, even if it's obsessive, we say, wow, what a high achiever. Um, and they are just ruminating about, you know, for example, their work or something. Uh, they're stuck on something that maybe from a societal point of view, we judge it as helpful. Um, and then obviously the, what we're discussing here is where, when, it, when it's judged as unhelpful or you know, becomes yeah. kind of problematic in someone's life. And, and, and there's partly that, but there's, and there's also whether that repetitive thinking is actually helping the person make progress. So, I mean, the real telltale sign of, of pathological rumination, the kind of rumination that people get stuck in in depression, for example, is that people are going round and round the same issues, the same questions, and they're not really getting much purchase. It just keeps going round and round. And all it's doing is exacerbating their low mood and making them feel worse and worse. Whereas if you're problem solving... My apologies. Is that what you mean by uh, there's very little detail in the rumination, that it's kind of like vague, it's broad, it's generalized, rather than actually going into sort of... uh, yeah. nuanced detail that goes out and examines it from you know very particular perspectives or takes multiple perspectives it, it's just very general in nature and therefore just goes around and around that's one of the distinctions that we found that seems to make a difference between whether it's helpful or unhelpful okay. so if we give people uh, in experiments we encourage them to focus on the detail of something they're thinking over and over and how it happened and how they can do something about it uh, and, and imagine, you know, the context in which it happened and the details of the sequence of what happened, then they tend to be more likely to either be able to problem solve and come up with solutions and generate a plan or to help put it into perspective and habituate to an upsetting event and, and process it. Whereas if they think about it in a more general way, what does this mean about me? Why did this happen? What are the consequences of this? As you ask those questions, you move away from the detail of the event, it becomes decontextualized, and it becomes more abstract. And what that does is that it makes it harder to come up with a plan, or what would I do differently, or a behavior. It makes it harder to put it into perspective, but it also tends to pull in other things. So it becomes a higher level issue. You know, This isn't about that time that you know, I made a mistake on my test this is about the fact that i can't do anything right or i'm going to fail all my studies so it becomes a bigger issue sure and as it gets more abstract it also tends to pull in other memories because it pulls in things of other memories that are the same sort of meaning so what what we often see happens when people get stuck in rumination is they're not just thinking about one thing but they're jumping from one thing to another to another so they're overwhelmed with all these thoughts and it's really really hard for them to kind of tidy them up and make sense of them and, and work through them. So, so we found this in experimental studies and we've shown that it affects things like problem solving, um, the ability to recover from an upsetting event, how upset you get if we give you something upsetting. And then that's, we fed that back into our, our clinical work. So we started saying, can we spot when people are becoming more abstract and getting into these sort of unhelpful questions about why and why me and why did it happen? And can we get them into more concrete, useful questions about how it happened and the detail and the context? And, and indeed, 
we've started to build that element into our cognitive behavioral practice and that's led to the the sort of new version of uh, adaptive version of cbt that we have particularly for rumination and we found that teaching and helping people to, to make that shift in, in itself can be really powerful at helping them break out of their rumination so focusing on the uh recognizing the detail and going deeper rather than going kind of um uh, uh broader um, yeah is, absolutely so getting into the specifics of a situation and what happened and how it happened and the detail of it rather than the broader wider meaning of that event or possible consequences of that event um because just thinking about meanings and consequences don't really help you to to process the event or come up with solutions they just make it a bigger problem um, and, and that's and that's been a mainstay of our therapeutic work and we've got quite a lot of evidence now that, that seems to be quite helpful with people i mean when we train people to just do that we've, we've come up with an intervention where we train people to do that with a sort of audio recorded exercise that they can practice at home on their own after a bit of training and then we follow them up with some phone calls to motivate them um, when we train people to do that and link it to spotting when they're starting to ruminate, we've shown that just doing that is about a four-hour intervention from the clinician um, can significantly reduce depression in people presenting with major depression um, versus a control. So, what's the audio um, sort of training that they do? What so basically, we we train people to to spot uh, when they're feeling down about something, a negative event, and then to go into the detail of that event and recreate. Either if it's happening now, focus on the sensory perceptual detail and where they are and what they can see and what they can hear or to do that in memory if it's a past event. And then to think through the sequence of how it happened, what led up to it, what happened just before this event, what happened during this event, what did you do, what did other people do, what did you say, what did other people say, what was the tone of voice, that kind of level of detail. And then how could you move forward from this, what would be the next steps you can take. So it's really designed to break people down into that really detailed contextual concrete way of thinking and and we're seeing that that in itself can can be an effective intervention um, and then we've built that into a broader sort of cbt model where we do other things to help people shift their rumination um, and and try and understand what might be keeping them stuck in rumination it's almost like uh, getting someone to first of all notice i think you use the word spotting um to notice then grounding themselves in five senses whether it be about that memory or potentially even about where they are but um, i'm assuming it's the memory because that's where they already are going into the detail of the situation uh trying to figure out you know all the nuances you know whether it was the the tone in which someone said something, you know, the environment, the context, what led up before it, you know, what was occurring, you know, in the in the weeks before. Any detail they can kind of pull together, but the smaller the smaller detail, the better. And then coming up with almost like an action plan of, you know, yeah. what's next, what can I do that's tangible, you know, a five senses world type um, decision. You know, what will I do now? Yeah, no, absolutely. So that's. I mean, so that's what we that that's what we do, and we found that has been that is one technique that we found works a lot with a, a lot of people, and 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 it's very much it's interesting because it's, it's a therapeutic technique that has derived directly from experimental study, which is relatively unusual in in the field. Most clinical techniques derive from working with patients and trying things out and getting a feel for it. Whereas we've had this dialogue both ways. I mean, one of the things we notice when 
when we start talking to people who ruminate a lot is they do talk in very abstract gen- generic ways about things so they you know and they'll summarize quite intense emotional events in little capsules and and you need to sort of get in there as a therapist okay okay you've summarized you know an hour's worth of quite intense stuff in a couple of sentences let's really slow that down and, and, and unpack it but the other thing we notice is is you hear a lot of the same kind of questions so why me why did this happen what does this mean about me? Why is this always happening to me? Um, and it, it, the analogy I give is, is is like the work on imagery in therapy. So until people started asking about whether patients were having imagery when they were getting anxious or depressed, we didn't really know because we weren't asking about it. Once you start asking people, what kind of questions are you asking yourself? How are you talking to yourself when you're ruminating about stuff? Then you start seeing these these kind of why type questions all over the place you know sort of why me and why why can't i do this or why are they treating me like this or why is this much harder than it used to be it, i mean they're all over the place in depression once you start asking people about it. and then you can see well if you're asking yourself those questions all this time that's really going to drive a lot of this focus on meaning and implication and consequence which is going to make it really hard to get grounded with, with upsetting events that are going on. Well, it's very easy to be overwhelmed and, and consumed by these, you know, enormous questions. I mean, in some sense, they're almost existential questions, you know, kind of like why, why would, you know, God yeah. do this to me yeah. or the universe do this or, you know, well, why would Mother Nature go out and, and bring this all upon me? These are huge, you know, existential, you know, why me absolutely, and not that person? Absolutely, absolutely. And, and one, of the, one of the things we've talked to very explicitly with patients is the idea of are you asking yourself what we call unanswerable questions? And they're unanswerable in the sense there is no definitive right answer. So if your car breaks down and you go, why is my car broken down? You, if you had enough knowledge of engines or you got in the mechanic you could find out why it had broken down but if you ask why did someone treat me like this or why do i feel like this or why is life like this there's not a definitive answer you can generate 101 different possible explanations and you and then you could move on to another one you can't settle on it so you're mm. constantly going round and round so we talk to people about those unanswerable questions you know can you move on to an answerable question like what can I do about it um, rather than why is it happening? And, and, and as, a, as a side, I would never really followed up on this, but there is a literature, um, perhaps anecdotal, that suggests, uh, and my colleagues in Cambridge talked to me about this, that philosophers tend to have a tendency to get depressed. And of course, this is what philosophers are paid to do, <laughs> to ask these questions. It's it's fascinating because we also see that when people hit these, you know, milestones of, you know, turning 40, turning 50, you know, turning a particular, you know, uh, or, or reaching a particular milestone, there's existential questions that often come up, you know, what have I done with my life so far? And, you know, is this enough? You know, what have I missed out on? And we just start asking really broader and broader and broader you know, is this a life worth living or not? You yeah, know, and it's like, yeah. oh gosh, we're going down the rabbit hole. And and and, and exactly. I mean, we, and one of the places we really see rumination kick in is is points of of loss and disappointment, which is understandable because people try and make sense of them and then they get caught in these questions. But points of transition or you know points of reflection. Um, 
I mean, and those questions aren't necessarily unhelpful, um, but they have to be asked in the right context and the right circumstances. So stopping and reflecting and asking, you know, how's my life going? What's important to me? Why did this happen? If you're doing that in a context of feeling reasonably good and things going reasonably well, that's quite useful because you can, you can kind of frame things in big picture. Okay, where do I go next in my life? But if you're doing it when you're feeling bad or something's gone wrong, then that can easily become a much bigger deal and you can get stuck in that kind of loop. One of those scenarios where uh, I think it's very much like positive thinking. Uh, I think there's some research out there that, 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 that suggests, you know, positive thinking, if things are going well, and then, you know, uh, uh, positive thinking is going to be quite functional and useful. But if they're kind of average or low and you're trying to do positive thinking, it, it, it tends to make things worse. Yeah, and 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 I mean, what's interesting is, um, you know, one of the things that happens when people get caught up in depressive rumination, in particular, is they're asking these kinds of questions. But not only are they asking those questions as in an attempt to make sense of things or to problem solve, but often then then it starts to creep in that there's a evaluative quality or a critical quality or a comparative quality. Um, so one of the things we've discovered quite early on when we were working with patients who had long-term depression is, you know, the, the classic first thing you do in, in a, a CBT intervention is you try and activate people. You get them to schedule activities, get them to be busy uh, and do things that they used to enjoy or they could get pleasure out of. And it was pretty common that we would have patients who would come back and say, I've done the thing that we planned to do. I've, I've met up with my friends or I've gone for a run or I've tried playing the piano again. And I did it, but I didn't actually feel any better. And what we spotted quite quickly is if you talk to people when they're doing that, when they don't get much benefit, what's often happening is they're having this running commentary. Why is this so much harder than the last time I did this? Or why can't I feel as good as before? Or, you know, so something that could be positive becomes negative because it gets compared to other situations. And so that ruminative running commentary just kills kills the fun of anything yeah so that so that's why we've been working really hard to see okay can we get past that when we make plans for people to do things and the same thing happens with memories so if you get someone who's tending to be ruminative to think about a positive memory from the past instead of being this a way to escape how they're feeling and to remind themselves of something great about themselves or something that's enjoyable it could easily become a, a negative comparison oh yeah that's something i used to do or that's how I used to be, and I can't do that anymore. And then that just makes it worse um, because, because they're at a distance and they're observing it and they're being abstract uh, from it rather than being connected to the experience. So one of the other things we've done in our intervention is work at ways of helping to people connect directly to positive experience and be absorbed in it, which is another way of making them grounded and concrete but to get the benefit of, of what they're doing in the real world. So they're not getting caught up in rumination when they're, when they're planning to do something that they potentially could find re- reinforcing or rewarding. There's just so much that, 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 that comparative judgment going on in, in, in that space. That, that's the rumination of, you know, where am I today versus where I should be? Maybe some even idealizing around you know, what, what the other trajectory would have been, you know, uh, yeah. that, that it would have all been kind of perfect. There wouldn't have been any challenges on that path. I've, I've found myself here though. 
Yeah, no, no, and and and, and I, I mean, I know that people have speculated, and and it makes sense to me intuitively. I don't know how we can ever scientifically prove or disprove it, but we talk about increasing rates of things like depression in society, and you you wonder whether some aspects of our our modern consumerist society tend to encourage comparison. You know, that keeping up with the Joneses or those folks on on social media who all look perfect or have these, you know, they're blogging and they're Facebooking and everything's going fine uh, and everything seems to be a breeze for them. And you wonder whether if we've got this tendency to make comparisons that, that might actually be putting some people at more risk because the comparisons are just naturally going to be more negative. Whereas, you know, a hundred years ago, you, your, your circuit of circle of who you could make comparisons to, would be much smaller and there wouldn't be so much of this kind of consumerist comparative culture. I mean, it's a hypothesis of one reason why rates of things like depression and rumination could, could conceivably be going up um, at a cultural level, certainly in the Western uh, culture. Uh, again, it's a really interesting idea how one ever would be able to kind of prove or disprove it conclusively. I don't know, but Sure. It, I mean, it certainly does make, make, make sense. I've always also, I suppose, in addition to that thought about the more civilized we become, you know, the more you know, luxurious life becomes, you know, the easier it becomes, the less work we need to put in and, and you know, the, the, the less effort that's required from us. Yeah, you know, the the more space it provides for us to think, and I know that you know you put a human being in solitary confinement, you know, with nothing to do, they start ruminating, and in actual fact, they start creating stories. They can start having you know all sorts of uh, hallucinations as well. We 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 kind of generate, um, you know, we have a kind of like a thought factory. We, we we're generating thoughts hmm. all the time, and it almost feels like the more that we're um, uh, the more comfort we're creating in in society potentially means that the more space that we're creating to be able to ruminate, to 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 kind of just think broadly, be more existential, ask these broad questions that don't gain any traction. Um, but yeah, you're absolutely right. The the huge amount of comparisons we can now do uh, are everywhere. Even even if someone's going out and you know building a house or something, they get you know, uh, decision fatigue, you know, because there's this 70 different, you know, colors of white that you can put on your walls now. And, you know, everyone's trying to get the right white, you know, the comparison of which right is the right white, you know, and which, I don't know, light, light fitting should we have? There's, you know, 6,000 yeah. light fittings in the store at the moment. Yeah, I think, I think those things are true. I mean, I, I also want to make sure that we don't minimize the, the experience of some of the folks who are really stuck in, in in anxiety and depression and ruminating because it's also the case it, it's not it's not just a kind of it's not just kind of like a, the idle riches kind of um kind of consequence i mean there are people and we see a lot of these in our in our clinics who are ruminating a lot because they are genuinely having bad stuff happen to them and oh, they're absolutely. stuck in, in difficult situations and and that could that and that can be poverty. It can be you know stressful work. It can be toxic relationships. Uh, it can be bullying. It can be abuse. I mean, so you know, so the, there's it's an it's a natural response to you know having 
bad stuff happen to you. Um, and, and, and it's important that we, you know, that we don't, when that happens to people, we say, look, it totally makes sense that your brain keeps coming back to this stuff because it is horrible and you want to make sense of it and you want to get out of it. Um, and, you know, so saying don't think about it isn't an option, you know, no, and that's no. why that's why I think distraction is not a good thing for rumination, because if it works, it's only ever going to work temporarily, because if the, if the issue is personal enough and important enough, it's going to keep coming back. So the question is not don't think about it, but can you think about this in a way that's going to be more helpful for you? So getting stuck in what does this mean about me and my future is probably not as helpful as okay, what happened? Can I try and contextualize it in some kind of way? Can I learn something from it? Can I do something different that makes things a bit better um, without minimizing? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right in terms of may maybe there is some explanation as to why the, the um, you know, rates are increasing. Um, at least that's what it appears, appears to be doing. Uh, but it doesn't uh, answer the, the, the actual real question of why are people depressed and, and every day, the context explains why people are depressed um, and the context is really king. Um, it goes out and explains, you know, the vast, 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 vast majority of, of, of people's um, experiences. And yeah, I mean, I, and, I, and maybe that's one of the things that maybe that's one of the things that's been helpful for me in working with people who've had depression, which is very early on, it became clear to me that, you know, it's kind of a there, but for the grace of God, go I kind of situation. You know, if, if I'd had the stuff, that had happened to this person happened to me. Would I be coping nearly as well as them? <laughs> I, 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 I don't know. So once you, once you've seen that, it's, it's kind of like, well, okay, I can, you know, I can put myself in this person's shoes. I can see that this is a tough situation and, you know, they're caught in the depression, which is like a double whammy. They've had the whammy of the bad stuff happen to them or the difficult circumstances. Now they've got, the whammy of feeling down and demotivated and negative. So let's see if we can help them get past some of that. And if, if we can help fix the, the difficult environment that they're, that they're in or the difficult memories that they have. Um, but, but, you know, sometimes that's not always possible. I mean, that, I mean, we all struggle with that as clinicians, the, the, the social context that we can't always impact. Yeah, the context remains the the, the the same and can't be shifted or moved. There might be some sort of, you know, um, conflict in there that, that, that has multiple cause and effects that someone's trapped in. Um, have, you ever, have you ever found yourself kind of uh, working with someone and, and, and kind of scratching your head going, my goodness, I, I don't know if I would be coping any better. Um, you know, I'd, I'd probably be in a worse state than what this person is. They're, they're actually coping incredibly well considering – the context, yeah, the story a, is just, that, just that's shocking. A pretty yeah. frequent experience, isn't it? You know, that yeah. There are people who are that, they're, they're walking around, um, you know, being coherent and and getting on with their lives or um, helping other people. Often, actually, which is really, uh, I mean, that's the other thing that's quite interesting that I found. You know, a lot of people with depression, they they ruminate a lot about how they're doing and whether they're helping other people and how they're coming across to other people. And they end up being carers for lots of other people, but not necessarily getting the reciprocal care back. Yeah. A really tough place to get to. Um, so, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, there's folks who, who you go, what, you know, wow, you're, you're really functioning pretty well considering all the stuff that you've had to put up with. Um, mm -hmm. 
because there's going to be context. The fact that they're making it to therapy and staying in where we're talking about really painful stuff um, is is also quite impressive and, and awe-inspiring sometimes. Yeah, yeah. Because it's really hard. I mean, you and I meet lots of people who contextually, uh, you know, you can't consider any other reasonable human response than to feel depressed. Uh, but we're kind of saying, you know, we're, we're trying to do depression and functionality at the same time. That there, there's going to be quite a lot of elements that are, that are conflicted there. Um, you know, unless we, we try and live a, you know, life of a monk or something and kind of detach and, and you know, remove ourselves from. But I don't think most of us are like, wanting that type of life, you no, know, where no, we're, no. we don't want to live with a robe and, and, and you know, practice, um, you know, uh, uh, those practices and kind of separate ourselves from the world or maybe in that perspective it's actually connecting with the world in a different way. I'm not sure. I don't want to certainly speak for, for uh, you know, monks, for, you know, whichever, um, you know, belief state they come from. But most of us want to be connected. We, we, we want to, for example, you know, care for those things that you know we see as important and we don't want to let let go of what's important yeah no absolutely and i think and often i mean it, it's quite useful to see that where people get stuck in in rumination is it, it's a reflection of how important something is to them you know i can't let this go i have to keep thinking about it because it's so important or because it's tied into something that's really valued to me um and 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 sometimes that's being done to the detriment of the person's own well-being, but it's because they're so, you know, this is important. I, I value this. So then, I mean, the, the shift we try and get in therapy is, okay, this is really important to you. That's, you know, that's your values. You, you need to live to your values. But how do you do that in a way that isn't making you feel terrible and, and down on yourself and, and, and lousy? Um, and sometimes that's – sometimes – that's possible. Um, I mean, sometimes, as you say, if you're in a context where you're really trapped, that's much harder. Um, I'm kind of hearing the concept and, and, and function of the word and where someone might be feeling depressed, you know, in this awful context and they still want to be fathering in a particular way or they still want to be, you know, um, you know working in a particular way for security reasons or whatever it might be. There's, you know, maybe they want to still be, you know, available as a friend despite also being depressed. And it's kind of kind of hard to balance those two where it's not one or the other. It's kind of one and making space for that one and, you know, then trying to do, do the other as well as you can. Yeah. No, I, I think it's very much about having multiplicity and, and being able to, to not just be defined by this is a state that I'm in and I can do other things. And also what can you, you know, one of our real focuses in our therapy is how you can help people achieve the goals they want to achieve and be more effective and be more helpful, you know, work out what works for them in their context, which could be very different from one person to another. The other part to that, which is quite important to emphasize, I think is that we need to sometimes make the distinction between you know, depression as it's seen as, as an illness a diagnosis and mood and low mood so it's it's normal and it's functional to have you know maybe even extreme low mood in a difficult situation 
Um, and, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it has to become this kind of all pervasive depressed, depressed state. I mean, that becomes more likely as that, um, if that situation feels like it's hard to get out of because then it, be it just becomes chronic and keeps going. Um, but it's normal for people to experience, you know, quite strong emotions of sadness and anger or anxiety in these kinds of contexts. And, but it, I think one of the things we're interested in is, okay, can you have those feelings and experience them strongly, but then not get caught up in them so that you can carry on in an adaptive way with dealing with situations. So it's not to say things are fine, everything's good, just carry on, it's all hunky-dory, because it's not, but it's can we move through upsetting situations in a, and not get stuck on them in a way that's adaptive? So, um, you know, because sometimes people get caught up in that I shouldn't be having these feelings. I shouldn't be feeling upset. I, sh I should be stronger than this. I should be managing this better. And that in itself sets up a ruminative cycle. Um, so, I mean, very early on, people talked about depression about depression, which is yeah. really another yeah. way of saying that you're ruminating. Um, I'm feeling bad and now I'm dwelling on that I'm feeling bad and I shouldn't be feeling bad and I should be feeling better and I shouldn't still be feeling tired, which of course just exacerbates the whole problem. So it gets very complicated um, mm -hmm. very quickly. In, 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 in some sense, that's maybe where an acceptance model or, or coming to terms with or making space, whatever language we use, kind of assists where, where there's an appreciation, understanding of being human is difficult. You know, this context is difficult. What you're currently going through right now is awfully painful and, and you know, is likely to remain, you know, difficult because of the context. You know, maybe you're caring for a loved one that's, you know, unwell. Uh, you know, maybe it's a huge transition from, you know, one one relationship to, to you know, loneliness and, and they, we don't have anyone with us at the moment on a romantic sense or whatever it might be. Uh, there's kind of an acceptance of that's what it means to be human. Yeah. No, absolutely. And and, and one of the things that we have that that's we've started to build into our intervention that it's not a quite accept. I mean, it has an acceptance component, but it's more, it's more a kind of compassion approach. So, sure, sure. It, you know, it's, it's like, it's part of human to feel these things. It's part of human to make mistakes, being human to make mistakes, to not get things right. And, and you there's a choice when things go wrong to, or things are difficult or you're feeling under the cosh to, you know, there's a, sometimes people, that's when people can really, the self-criticism can really kind of, sort of ramp up and then and then that makes it really difficult as opposed to that might be the time when you really need to try and care for yourself and soothe yourself and support yourself and encourage yourself and and of course people who've had lots of really difficult upbringings and backgrounds you know naturally often find that difficult to do because they haven't had the experience of of, of others helping them to, to do that and that's pretty common in rumination that the rumination is very self-critical and it makes it very hard to, to be caring or supportive or encouraging to oneself. So that's another element that we have experientially in the, in the treatment to help to address those sorts of situations with folks, which is, you know, yes, something is difficult or you haven't, you've made a mistake, but you know, can you try and treat yourself with some kindness about this? 
What do you think it is about compassion that makes so much, you know, so much difference? You know, we know that there's there's, there's models around, you know, compassion focused therapy. You know that the ACT world tries to be, you know, incredibly, you know, compassionate and understanding, and you know that that, that that's part of that acceptance element. I think acceptance is awfully, uh, you know, bound in in meaning and those sorts of things, but there's a lot of that kind of um, willingness to, to, to understand and be present and to try and mm. sit with that, that, those feelings in a kind and caring and a gentle, gentle way. What, what is it about that, 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 you know, makes the, makes the difference. It just seems like there are so many approaches that, uh, you know, really even historically, psychology is compassion driven you know we're, we're helping uh profession we we we, we try yeah. and first and foremost not judge and just try and understand and you know give people a hug so to speak a metaphorical hug you know in in, in trying to hear their you know and and, and validate those feelings and, and, and thoughts well, what is it about this compassion thing is this, is this just innately how we're biologically made what what's going on there well, I, I, th- I think there's partly, uh, there's part that, I mean, and certainly if you talk to someone like Paul Gilbert, he has a very well-developed set of biological uh, brain mechanisms, you know, self-soothing circuit, and, that, and that's kind of powerfully hardwired. I mean, I think it also speaks to the fact that, you know, we are a social animal um, as human beings. And so a lot of things that are really important to us are about connection and relationships. And an important part of connection and relationships is support and encouragement from others and you know if you had relationships that didn't have that they would feel very kind of different um and and of course you know what we hope is that that you have those kinds of experiences from from parents or key people when you're young that helps you to build some sense of resilience but also to to learn to internalize some of that ability to, to to care for yourself and support yourself and to do that to other people and you know that that to show empathy and and so it feels like that is very powerfully tied to who we are and it seems particularly powerful for things like depression because it provides a different model of approaching situations um, so one of the ideas we have that keep with respect to rumination is that it can become really problem, problematic for people because it becomes a sort of a habitual way of responding to things that they've learned over time. And, and it becomes reinforced in a way because it's been done so many times. And, and like a lot of habits, part of what might be reinforcing it is that it has an element of avoidance to it. So the rumination in some ways helps to avoid something distressing even if it itself makes you feel worse. Now, I mean, there's different ways that could work. So at a very practical level, if you're thinking about doing something rather than actually doing it, you're (laughs) reducing the risk of that sort of total shame and humiliation and failure. Uh, You know, so, so, I mean, and then we all have examples of that. So the sort of, you know, rehearsing in your mind, the multiple times that that person you find attractive, you might actually approach and uh, ask out makes us anxious but it's not nearly as anxious as what would happen if we did and we got completely pushed back uh, until people get used to doing that so so there's the avoidance 
you know, by doing it in your head rather than in the world. But there's, we get a sense there's some more subtle forms of avoidance because rumination sometimes makes one feeling stronger whilst replacing another. So, um, and you can see that in loops. So sometimes people get angry after they've been down because anger is a way of, you know, instead of blaming myself, I blame other people. And then I get angry. And that's kind of motivating because I feel empowered and more positive. But then I feel embarrassed and shameful. I'm blaming it. And then people get into this loop that goes backwards and forwards. And, and, and one of the arguments we've made is sometimes the self-criticism in rumination may have a similar um, avoidant function because people might be using it as a form of motivation. So if I, if I tell myself off enough, if I point out what I'm doing wrong enough, if I push myself enough, it might get me to do things. It's, it's kind of the metaphor is like you're on the parade ground and you've got the sergeant major bawling in your ear to get you over the assault course. Now, in the short term, shouting at yourself like that might help motivate to get things done. But in the long term, it tends to be pretty down on you. Um, so one of the reasons we think compassion is really powerful is because it's another way of motivating yourself that doesn't have that downside. Mm. And, and one of the things that we often see when people are ruminating is that it's almost like they, they're picking up on what they're not good at and, and their faults and, and what they're worried about because they're trying to avoid becoming the kind of person they don't want to be. So someone who's worried about becoming arrogant and selfish will always be ruminating about, am I overreacting or am I being too inconsiderate or am I being selfish? So they've got this avoidant, how do I avoid being something negative by putting myself down and pointing out where I'm doing things wrong? Um, and it almost feels like that kind of gets motivated. The great thing about compassion and, and, and things like that is, is a way of how can I approach a more positive me as an alternative? So rather than how do I beat myself up and point out all the things I'm doing wrong so I don't become arrogant and selfish, it's, well, how do I make myself more thoughtful and more compassionate? To myself and others, um, which is a so I think it has a number of elements, which is why it can be so powerful. It can it can have a a direct emotional experience because when you do compassion exercises, even when you're being compassionate to other people, it tends to be quite calming and quite relaxing. Um, it has a motivational element, but it also has this functional element about helping break out of some of those cycles of avoidance. So. So that's one of the reasons why, I mean, we don't use it with every patient, but with patients who it fits for, it can seem like a really powerful intervention. Ruminations, in some sense, is another word for patterns. And, you know, when, when someone's in a pattern of thoughts, you know, or, or in a sequence in thoughts, whether it be going from sort of low, depressive, hopeless patterns of thoughts to patterns of anger, maybe I can externalise, you know, my, my you know, um, feelings to anger towards others you know or maybe towards me um there's a pattern in there and if i kind of just reflect on my own pattern i often end my 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 pattern of upset or frustration or hurt with what can i learn from this and these this is just a pattern that you know i have no idea where it's come from um but i'm, I'm very blessed to to have that pattern because it dug me out of the ditch many a time these are all very logical approaches, you know, uh, and I imagine most of us can, can quite easily grasp the logic. How do we move it from logic into application where, you know, it's, it's in the real world? Is this, 
is this like pattern training where we, we just have to do volume of repetitions where, you know, trying to encourage a motivation to if you do it enough time, you, you, you build a, you know, a sequence, you build a, a, a better muscle, if you will, towards being able to functionally do that, whether it's, you know, similar to, I suppose, if we think about borderline personality um, treatments like BP, uh, like um, uh, DBT, huge intensity in, in doing chain analyses to ask someone, you know, what were you thinking? What were you um, seeing? What were you kind of interpreting? What were you feeling at the time, et cetera, et cetera. What did you end up doing? How did you think that through that process, et cetera, et cetera. And you're just doing it so many times a repetition to, in some sense, drill it. In in in, mm. in 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 is this some of uh, the ruminations to kind of unstick them or, or to make a different one more sticky require repetition? Is that is that yeah 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 absolutely. So so I mean, there's a couple of things that you said there that that we absolutely do in our treatment models um, based on this idea that it might become a habit. Rumination itself might become a habit in people who get really stuck in it. Which means to, to get them out of the habit, we first of all we need to un- understand it, which is where we would do a, I mean, we would do a very detailed functional analysis, uh, antecedent yes. behaviour consequence, which is very similar to the, the chain analysis kind of idea. But we're doing sure. it to understand the process and then work out where we can break the links. But then we would very explicit, we very explicitly talk to to our patients, our clients about the idea that it's a habit, and that seems to be quite a useful way of conceptualizing it with people because everyone understands what a habit is this is not a kind of a con a jargonistic term sure. everyone understands everyone understands that a habit is something that you can change but you probably need to work at it to change it you need repetition you need to understand the triggers to the habit which means you need to become aware and, and self-monitor which is part of the therapy we you know what comes just before i ruminate other particular triggers um, People also understand that habit is something that can change and isn't part of them as a personality. So you can see it's something I do a lot, but isn't just me. And I think that's really useful psychologically, the idea that oh, this isn't just who I am as a person and I can't change it. It's, it's something, it's a behavior and we can change it. But what it does mean is that when we start making intervention, we really do need to drill it. So it's like the learn a response, practice this response, practice the response again. Um, so we would often get people to spot their trigger for a rumination. So it might be getting tense is a trigger. And then, okay, can we practice a good alternative? And that might be relaxation. It might be training people to, 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 to use this more kind of grounded, concrete thinking. It might be compassion. But then we'd get them to practice that in the session again and again. Um, we'd get them to practice it as homework both maybe to a recording of doing it on an on a t- uh, audio recording, but also in their day-to-day life. Um, and we might, we might even induce the, the, the trigger. So think about something that's upsetting, so you start feeling upset, and now practice doing the different response and, and, it, and with, with repetition um, because that's how you change a habit. Um, so, so that very much has, in, has informed our, our treatment model um, and and we're, we're still investigating whether that's a key component or whether that you know you really need to do that habitual training but my my hunch is that that is quite important that sometimes you 
it's not you don't need to keep doing lots and lots of new things lots of new strategies or interventions find a couple of ones that work and then really practice them maybe a better way forwards um, than overwhelming someone with lots and lots of different ways of trying to, to, to deal with their their depression and their rumination it's really interesting because there's always this uh, tension between you know the cognitive and the behavioral sort of sides where obviously you know uh you know cognitive therapists versus you know behavioral therapists we've packaged it all together recognizing both sides are, are so important and there are some times where we kind of have these feelings of you know th- there's got to be this behavioral sort of space and th- th- this other side you know, it's like we've got to go deeper into the the cognitive side there's always this kind of tension about i recognize the tension i recognize the camps yeah. um I, I don't feel that myself at all because effectively uh, I have a, we do a therapy for rumination. Rumination is a cognitive process. Yeah. Yeah. But it's also a behavior. Yes. Yes. Um, yes. And we do functional analysis and we do habit work, which is very behavioral, but we do it on cognitive content and cognitive process. And we get people to shift from being abstract to concrete, which is a very cognitive shift. And we get them to shift from, being critical to compassionate, which is a cognitive, maybe experiential shift. But we do all of that in the context of behavior. So I, don't, I, I think you can set these things up as attention, but you can also say, actually, they just flow into each other mm-hmm. because that's how we work as people. And uh, why don't we just do that as, a, as an intervention? So, I mean, it's really funny because the, the name we've given to this therapy is Rumination Focused Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. But a big component of it is, and we're very upfront about this, is, is a form of behavioral activation. We could have equally called it rumination-focused behavioral activation. Now, you know, the, 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 the reason we didn't call it behavioral activation is because there's a lot of focus on the style of cognition, which is much more yeah. cognitive. But a lot of the work is functional analysis, which is about as behavioral as, as it gets. Get. Yeah, yeah. So, so, but but I, I go, I mean... I guess that you know my question would be well what what works best for whom yeah, what's going to be yeah. most worrying about whether it's cognition or behavior is not really relevant to mm. to the client's experience of whether it's helpful or not uh, I think maybe just, maybe even the uh, the word tension is a clumsy use of, of 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 word it should be the word connection that there's always this connection because they they're kind yeah, of like so um change, siblings change, right you change one and you change the other you can't yeah. you can't you can't, it's very hard, and this is one of the problems when people have tried to understand, say, how cognitive behavior therapy works. It's very hard to change one of these things without getting changed on the other one. So, you know, to get this kind of pure proof that it's yeah. just the cognition do it, it's probably not possible because cognition and behavior are so intertwined, and emotion is intertwined, and context is intertwined. Yeah, and, yeah. And interpersonal and relationships of it all, you know, once you place the meaning of it all, you know, layers everything it's you know the complexities just just mean that they they're they're brothers and sisters right they 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 are have to remain siblings and you can't kind of separate them because you know they they still they still occur in the same one being being the human being so you know they they happen in that context so it's fascinating there's, there's another parallel to that which is um i mean i talk about rumination because i'm coming from a depression background but lots of people ask me well, what's different between that and worry for example and um i mean because there's a lot of literature now there's a lot of evidence that worry and rumination are highly correlated 
they have a lot in common. They're both repetitive. They're both negative. They're both things that people find hard to control. They both tend to be abstract when they're unhelpful. Um, and so uh, myself and a number of other people propose that they're probably this, using very similar mechanisms and have very similar processes. It might just be that the goals or the content that feeds into them is slightly different. So worry is a bit more future and threat focused and rumination is a bit more past and loss oriented. But I think the basic mechanisms are the same, which is simple, which sort of makes sense to me because, you know, from an evolutionary perspective, our body and brain don't build additional extra layers of complexity that we don't need. If we've got one system that does something, that system could use, be used for multiple things. That's all very well. And, and we can, as academics, we can debate that. But when you sit and talk to clients, it's, in many respects, it's, a, it's a totally arbitrary and meaningless distinction to them because they will tell you that I spend a lot of time dwelling about things that have happened in the past and what they might mean. And then I jump to thinking about what that might mean about what could go wrong in the future. Um, so, you know, to say, well, is that worry or is that rumination? Well, they're just, it's a continuum <laughs> and they're moving between them in the same way that there's a continuum and you're moving between cognition and behavior. Yeah, yeah. Great point. Great point. We could speak for hours on, on, on you know, ruminations, worries, the semantics, you know, how, how to go out and, 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 you know, pull these concepts apart and obviously, you know, helping people in, in, in living you know, whether it's with ruminations or beyond ruminations or, you know, hopefully one day also reducing those. Um, but because uh, we really, we've got limited time, how can people get in contact with you or find out more about your work, um, more about, you know, your, your, um, your research, the lab and the like? Yeah, so, um, I mean, you can, people can reach me by, at my email, which is e r.watkins at exeter.ac.uk or they can go to my university website so if you go to the university of exeter uh, if you search university of exeter in any web in search engine and you look for mood disorder center you'll find me there uh, and then there'll be more detail about what i'm doing if you're particularly interested in the treatment that we do and, and we've uh, what i haven't talked about is we've actually got quite good evidence now from clinical trials that these interventions have worked um, in people with severe depression. So we've shown it adds value to just taking antidepressants. We've shown that it does better than standard CBT for depression in adults in a group setting. We've got some evidence that it can be preventative for anxiety and depression in young people. Um, so if you're interested, in, so I think you know we've got some evidence that these approaches actually do help us improve outcomes. Um, we do have a, there's a manual that's been published by Guildford Press. Um, so if you're really interested in the detail of the therapy, there's a manual with a, does what it says on the tin title of rumination focused CBT for depression. Um, Is that out already? Yeah, though, that's been out for a few years. So it's in bookshops. You can get it on Amazon. Um, it, it's, it's available. In fact, it's in paperback and hellback now. So, uh, and I think there's an electronic version as well. I think they all do that now, these publishers. Um, uh, and uh, so that's that. We are thinking about trying to develop training programs for the therapy, um, but we'll have more about information about that on the website. Um, what else is there to say? We're also running a couple of studies at the moment. Um, so uh, with some colleagues in Salt Lake City in Utah, we're doing a 
US NIMH funded study to look at targeting rumination in adolescence with a history of depression. So see if we can prevent relapse. Um, we're also doing a big European commission funded study across eight different countries in Europe where we're building an app to help young people uh, build well-being. It's got a number of components in it, but perhaps unsurprisingly, one of those components is teaching people how to reduce worry and rumination. So we've nearly finished building that. So uh, at some point, we'll be recruiting uh, people to take part in that study in the UK, Spain, Germany, and Belgium uh, early next year. So that might be something people want to look out for. Yeah, wow. And that, 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 that's got a schedule for release early next year and then obviously pilot pilot uh, well we're going into a clinic we're going into a clinical trial clinical trial that we're going to try out i mean so my research switches between experimental work to try and understand mechanisms and then clinical trials to see if we can actually improve treatments and delivery to to people in need so that's what's so fascinating about about your work you know you're on the ground doing the work and, and and not only doing so and have experience in that but also looking at it from you know the research perspective of the mechanisms that that are you know the 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 functions of processing whether it be how someone becomes depressed or ruminates to you know what is it that causes them to whether it be interrupt or to move their attention away from it and and the like it's such such important work um i thank you so much for uh for your time today thank and, you and it's been a real pleasure your, some great questions no no my, my, my pleasure i wish we could uh you know extend it on but uh, uh we'll leave that for next time okay thanks very much if you enjoyed this podcast please support it by going to itunes and putting a review subscribe share it via social media and tell others about it start a conversation It's listeners like you that make this able and possible and why we bring in these guests to go out and share their knowledge and resources. And just lastly, if you are a psychologist and you want to go out and be part of a bigger team, develop your experience and get into some exciting work, come to strategicpsychology.com.au forward slash careers and reach out. I'd love to hear from you.